Shalom, and welcome to Scripture Central, the old Book of Mormon Central for Come Follow Me. I'm Lynn Hilton Wilson, and we've got the four last books of, of Paul's prison letters today. We have Philemon, First and Second Timothy, and Titus. I put Philemon first because chronologically that's where it fits. All four of these letters were written from prison. We usually call the last three, Timothy, Timothy, Titus, the pastoral letters. He's writing these to pastors. He's giving advice to bishops and to deacons and to the ward members and to how they can serve and build the community of Christianity. These letters fall in the third decade of Christianity. And so we see the church going beyond just the missionary focus to the living together as a community and how to build and strengthen each other and edify as saints. If you'd like to look at my slides or my handouts, they're all online. You go to Book of Mormon Central or Scripture Central Archives and pull down, come follow me, New Testament, and you can find them. But I wanted to present today chronological order. Remember, the books of the New Testament were put together in the order by length. But I have here on my chart the chronological order. And we know that Philemon is written first because there's an enormous um, natural disaster that destroys the city that he's writing to where um, Philemon lived and in 63 AD. And so this letter, it probably predates the other three to Timothy and to Titus. As far as figuring out where historically these pastoral letters fit in in these prison epistles, just go back to the book of Acts, chapter 28. The very end of Acts is where these fit, but most of them fit after Acts. Remember, Acts stops when Paul is in his first Roman imprisonment, and he says in one of the letters that he hopes to go to Spain. Um, well, that's not in King James Version, but another translation, and he hopes to go to, to these other places. And then in 2 Timothy, it sounds like a completely different imprisonment. He's chained, he's cold, he's alone while Luke is with him. But it's a very different time. So we assume that these occurred in a second different imprisonment still under Nero. And this is also verified and validated by historical records that record the history of early Christianity. I mentioned earlier this earthquake that occurred in 63 to 64 AD. If you want to look at the map here, Colossia, which is where Philemon lives, we talked about in the letter to Colossians. And I had mentioned that it was a very fertile area, and they were well known for these sheep that were bred to have a dark red wool. And this is about 120 miles west of Ephesus. And when Paul begins this letter to Philemon, he identifies not only himself, but also his wife. Let's start at verse 1 in the NIV translation. Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our dear friend and fellow worker, and also to Aphia, that's maybe his wife, I don't know, our sister, and our Cupicius, our fellow soldier, and to the church that meets in your home. So we start out right from the beginning in verse 2, learning that the church there in Closia doesn't have their own building, but Philemon is wealthy enough to have a large home where the saints come and gather. And they meet there regularly, not just on their Sabbath to break the bread. And their Sabbath, of course, is the first day of the week in remembrance of the Lord's resurrection, not the Jewish Sabbath, which was the last day of the week, their Saturday, our Sunday. If you go back historically to the letter that Paul wrote to Colossians, I described it. There's three small villages. Actually, one of them is a pretty big city that are close to each other. They're in the Lycus River Valley of modern day Turkey. And they interplayed with each other. And the financial center used these sheeps. 
And there's also some beautiful healing hot springs in that area. And supposedly there's a lot of Jews that live there. And so this was a natural area for Paul to go on his mission and try to preach the gospel, bring them in. And one of the people he obviously met was this man named Philemon, to whom he's writing the letter. But he takes a lot of time in writing this letter. He, this is a very carefully orchestrated letter. And the reason why we know that is the entire letter from verse 1 down to verse 25 is a perfect chiasmus. And it is beautifully sculpted. This is not just a haphazard ideas thrown out there. Every single point is paralleled. The first is consistent with the last. The second is consistent with the second to the last. And the most important part is right at the center. That is verse 14. Paul needs Philemon's consent that he will take back Onimius. We learn about the whole purpose of this letter is to ask Philemon to receive back a runaway slave. Let's jump down to verse 10 and we learn who this runaway slave is. I beseech thee for my son, Onimius, whom I have begotten in my bonds. So Paul is in prison in Rome and he has converted a young man or a man named Onimius and he finds out after his baptism that he actually is a runaway slave. Now, remember in the Roman world, in many provinces, the slaves were released by age 30. So I referred to him as a young man because I think he's younger than 30. Now, in some provinces, they are not made slaves and they're not released from slavery until age 35. But it sounds like this guy ran away. And um, he ran away clear from Turkey all the way over to Rome. And he's there in Rome when Paul meets him and converts him to the gospel. And somehow we're told that... Um, Paul is able to not only bring him to the gospel, but finds out that he is a runaway slave from one of Paul's friends when Paul was serving in the gospel. Now, he never had visited Colossia, but he had been to that region and he knew many of the people in that region. And so he says, Philemon, you won't believe it. Coincidence has put us together again. And I know you love me. I love you. In fact, I converted you to the gospel all of your understanding of the gospel and your ability to serve is due to me. So would you do a favor for me? And I've got to obey the law. I've got to return this runaway slave to you, but I want you to receive him as if he were a brother. That's the purpose of the letter. I want to return this runaway slave. Well, this is quite surprising, but let's go through the letter before we're shocked to say, what is an apostle doing returning a runaway slave? Verse 15 to 16 in the NIV reads, Perhaps the reason he was separated from you for a time. So he's saying, Philemon, maybe this runaway slave left you for a time that you might have him back forever, no longer as a slave, but better than a slave, as a dear brother. He is very dear to me and even dearer to you. Both of us, a fellow man as a brother in the Lord. He's saying, he's not a servant and a slave He's a child of God. Can you receive him back as a child of God? I'm going to obey the law. I'm going to return him. But I don't want you to receive him as someone that you will order around and disrespect and beat. I want you to receive him as a member of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Continuing on in 18 and 19, again in the NIV. If he has done you any wrong or he owes you anything, charge it to me. I, Paul. I'm writing this with my own hand. 
I will pay it back. But not to mention that you owe me your very self. <laughs> this is so funny. So he says, you know, I want you to treat him nicely. I want you to be kind to him. And if he, if, if this has caused you any money because he's been gone, I will pay personally. But just don't forget, you owe me your eternal life because I can, I brought you the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, he's sort of going back and forth. It's sort of a manipulation kind of a conversation, but it, it's just fascinating to see the interesting balance between obeying the law and living as a Christian should. Verse 22 continues on in the NIV, prepare a guest room for me because I hope to be restored, meaning he'll get out of prison. In answer to your prayers, I will come and visit you. So he's saying, I'm going to send back your slave, but then I'm going to come check up on you. So make sure you are prepared for me to come because you don't know when I'm coming. I don't know when I'm coming. I hope to be let free, but I want you to be kind. This goes back to the message that I taught at the Last Supper in my lectures on John chapter 13 and 14, that why does Jesus act as a slave? Why does John the Baptist say, I'm not even worthy to be a slave? Why does John the Baptist teach slaves to obey their masters? Why does Christ give parables of slavery? Why does this happen? Because Jesus is turning their entire socioeconomic culture upside down. Instead of getting rid of slavery, Jesus is teaching masters how to serve. Do you remember from his last supper? What I do, thou knowest not now, but thou shalt know hereafter. And back early in his gospel, while Christ is preaching, repeatedly he says phrases like this one in Luke twenty two twenty seven. This is the RSV translation. I am among you as one who serves. There's a very interesting relationship between the slaves and disciples. Remember, they are not able to wash feet, but a disciple is to do everything that for their master that a slave would do. And Paul is going back to that same idea. We need to all be servants to our Lord, and we also need to all be servants to our God. And let's get rid of this slavery mentality and just serve one another joyfully. Very interesting letter. I love the book of Philemon. But let's move on now to the three pastoral letters. These are written to teach and train up young leaders. Because both Timothy and Titus are bishops, I think both of them are like something like our stake presidents or our area authorities. They're people who are training up leaders. And so Paul, as an apostle, is writing to them, teaching them how to be better leaders. If we want to get more historical background on 1 Timothy, we are given a lot of information about him on Paul's second mission. In Acts chapter 16 and 1 Timothy 1 and 2 Timothy 1, we learn that this is that young convert of Paul when he was serving in Lystra. We also know that Timothy is mentioned in nine epistles, and he is the co-author of five of these epistles. And if we want to know more about Titus, he was present with Paul at the Jerusalem Council. Do you remember after the first mission and before Paul's second mission in Acts chapter 15, verses 2 to 22? At that Jerusalem council, Titus is there, and Titus is told that he doesn't have to be circumcised. Titus is probably with Paul there in prison in A.D. 66 to 67. It's the very end of his life. And we hear about him in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, as well as Galatians chapter 2, two epistles he's mentioned. And as we go back to the chronological order, 1 Timothy comes probably sometime between 61 and 64, and then the next pastoral letter chronologically is Titus. 
Now, remember, the Timothys are together and then Titus because of the length of the books, the sizes of the book. But chronologically, it goes 1 Timothy, Titus, and then 2 Timothy. So that's why I'm presenting it here today, our four letters in chronological order. So let's start with 1 Timothy outline. It's easy. The first half is all about practical instructions, and the second half is about practical instructions, and he divides them by three beautiful hymns. He always starts out with his introduction and his charge to Timothy, and then he ends with his charge to the rich and to Timothy again. But I just want to remind you who Timothy was. We know his mother and his grandmother. This is wonderful. He's a Greek convert. They live out in the diaspora. His mom and his grandma are both Jewish, but both women had married Gentiles. And so they're raising Timothy together as a good Jewish young man. He knows the scriptures from his youth, is what we're told in 2 Timothy. And we also know that he had great faith. And it first came in his mother and grandmother. And his sensitivity to the gospel comes from this upbringing, this sensitive mom and grandma. As we move now to the letter, though, this is Timothy's third assignment. If you go back to Acts and you go back through all the different historical backgrounds, you see that Paul gives Timothy assignments all the time. Timothy joins Paul as a companion on missions, and now Timothy is out on his own. He's serving in Ephesus. He's serving on the western border of Turkey, and Paul, writing him from Rome, is giving him instructions. So he says in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, by commandment of God, and then skipping down a little bit to verse 2, unto Timothy. I'm just thinking of our mission calls, you know. The call comes from God. This letter comes from God. Timothy is receiving a calling from God. And he continues on, my own son in the faith. So Paul has embraced him as not just a junior companion, but as a son. He loves him dearly. Grace and mercy and peace from God our Father and Jesus Christ our Lord. The first thing he does in this letter is he attacks the false teachers, and he never leaves very far from that. In both the first instructions and the second instructions, he really lambasts these false teachers who are trying to come in and not just undermine Paul's teaching, but they're destroying our Savior's teachings. He sees them already actively in work. We can see an apostasy right here in 1 Timothy, actually all three of the prison letter, all three of the pastoral letters. Timothy, Titus, and Timothy, again, have this attacking nature. Right from the start, the first thing he attacks is people who are wasting their times with endless genealogies. That's sort of funny because in our church, we sort of think genealogy work's important. We sort of think it's important to know our work. And we know from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 29, that they were baptizing for the dead. So what's this problem with endless genealogies? I mean, he mentions it twice here. I think. The problem was they're trying to prove that they will be descendants of blue blood and they are jumping through hurdles. It's interesting as I look back at the genealogy work that was done at this period of time, just like we look at the genealogies in Matthew chapter one and Luke chapter three, you skip many, many generations just to link yourself up with a royal line. And once you link yourself up with a royal line, it communicated that you were important. So I think he's saying, you're wasting your time on this stuff. Stop going down these black holes that make no difference. I want you to spend your time where it's important. He says in verse four of chapter one in the NIV, and he's talking about these genealogies, these endless genealogies, such things promote controversial speculations. 
rather than advancing God's work. This is so important to me. Let's not waste our time arguing over where's Zarahemla or arguing over some of the details of our history. Let's focus on the prophet's call now and what we should be doing now with our lives. Verse five, I'd like to read in the BSB. You know, he's saying the goal of our instruction, meaning every letter I've written, Paul's not just to Timothy, but the goal of his missionary work and his instruction to the ministries is to love. And that comes from a pure heart, a clear conscience and sincere faith. Paul is writing out of love. His motives are love, just as Christ's motives were love, just as our father's motives are love. We learn in Moses chapter one, verse 39, everything that's happening because of love. This is not manipulation. This is not for greed. He continues on though in verse six with an immediate warning from which some having swerved have turned aside to vain janglings. So some of the words, especially in the Pauline epistles, I think we need modern translations. It's very difficult in the Pauline epistles to understand them, especially if you are a teacher of youth. I would encourage you to go to a good translation. And the BSB is one of those. Some have strayed from these ways and have turned aside to empty talk. The falling away was already in full scope by 61 to 64 AD as Paul is writing this letter. He continues on in verses 8 to 10 in the NIV. We know that the law is good and anyone uses it properly. We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for, and then he skips ahead a little bit down to verse 10, whatever else is contrary to the sound doctrine. He's saying, if you were really living by the Spirit, we wouldn't need all these laws. You know, and, and remember, Paul grew up as a Pharisee. He had the 10,000 oral laws in addition to the 613 commandments of the law of Moses. So he's saying, let's stop this arguing and this contention. He continues on in verse 12 to 15 that God is a God of forgiveness. And he said, I'm proof that God is forgiveness. Look who I was. I thank Christ. And skipping ahead a little bit to verse 15, he appointed me in his service, even though I was once a violent man. I was shown mercy because I acted in ignorance and unbelief. And Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am the worst. This is so interesting. In different translations, the King James says, he hath enabled me. But I love the RSV as well. He's given me strength. And the NAB, he made me equal to the task. And that is the blessing of serving God. He makes us equal to the task. We may not be good missionaries. We may not have the natural capacity to do a lot of things. You may not believe this, but when I was young, I was so shy, I wouldn't speak to anyone. I was scared to talk to my dad, my mom said, when I was even five and six years old. And when she told me that, I was still scared to talk to anyone. I was just frightened to talk to anyone but my mom. The Lord strengthens us. And that's exactly what 1 Timothy is saying. Paul is encouraging him to do the will of the Lord. And then comes the first Kim in chapter one, verse 17. Now unto the King eternal, immortal and invisible, the only wise God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now the King James uses this word invisible God, but other translations change that to an unseen God which I think is interesting. We walk by faith because we don't see him. So in this context, the antonym of faith 
is sight. We often say the antonym of faith is fear, but here the unseen, so we're walking by faith. Continuing on in verse 18, this is from the NIV. Timothy, my son, I'm giving you this command in keeping with the prophecies once made about you. You know, I know you're supposed to be a great leader. So even if you don't feel capable of doing this, I know the Lord will magnify you. I know he will strengthen you. He continues on in verse 18. So that by recalling them, you may fight the battle well. You know, remember back to these prophecies. You were given them. Remember back to these promises. He continues on with directions on how to pray. This is now chapter two, verses one through eight. That whole eight verses is on prayer, but I'm just going to start with verses one and two in the NIV. I urge, now in King James, that's exhort, skipping down a little bit, that petitions or prayers, intercessions and thanksgiving be made for all people, kings, for all those in authority, that we may live peaceably and in holiness. Now, the word peaceable here is very interesting. It means divinely inspired inner calmness. Peace is not just a self-centeredness or a, a calmness. If you are feeling peace, according to the biblical definition here, it's a divine inspired inner calmness. It's much more powerful than we consider. Chapter two, verse four continues on with Joseph Smith translations. He says here, who is willing, those are both Joseph Smith changes, to have all men to be saved and to come unto the knowledge of the truth. God is willing to save all. God wants to save all. He loves all. And then continuing on the Joseph Smith translation adds, which is in Christ, who is the only begotten son of God and ordained to be a mediator between God and man. Now remember, a mediator is one who goes between. And sometimes it's referred to as an advocate. But when the Joseph Smith translation edition here is so clear that Jesus is our mediator. It's not one of the saints. It's not Mary. It's our Savior. And he elaborates on who our Savior is. Paul's words were testifying of Christ in every chapter over and over. Continuing on to verse 8, he starts giving counsel to the men. And this is in the NIV translation. I want the men everywhere to pray uplifting the high and holy hands, but without anger or disputing. So he's giving them some counsel here. He wants them to be cautious. Don't ever begin a prayer in anger. Don't ever begin a prayer when you're still disputing with one of your neighbors. I want you to purify yourself. And then he leaves from giving the counsel to men to giving the counsel of women. Now he doesn't talk about prayer with the women. They don't have a problem with praying in anger, I guess. They have another problem. And that is with their appearances and listening to corrupt teachers. So chapter two, verses nine through 15, now give advice to the women. He says, a woman, adorn yourselves in modest apparel with shamefacedness and sobriety, not with braided or bordered hair and gold and pearls and costly array, but with good works. But I want to read those in other translations. So in my chart, I've got it all written out. So when the King James says shamefacedness and sobriety, the Jerusalem Bible says quietly and modestly, much nicer. You know, I want you to learn. I want you to teach. I want you to be part of the church, but do it with modesty. And in your life, be calm and quiet. In the NAS, it says modestly and discreetly, or in the RSV, modestly and sensibly. I also like John W. Welch's translation when he says, in good taste, in a matter that brings honorable respect, 
you know, I, I just think our generation has gone so far to be so concerned about vain things. But he continues on after talking about the problem that women are having with spending too much time with vanity. And then he goes on to talk about women's learning. And I want to just point out that chapter two, verse 11, starts out with something powerful. Let the women learn. Now, just that line alone is a major change from the time of the Pharisaic traditions that Paul grew up in that said a woman should never be taught to learn. In fact, it says to fathers, it said, he who teaches his daughters the law is the same who taught them lechery. And then another rabbi answers back and says, don't ever teach your daughters um, the law. You'll only have a trouble with the rest of your life. You know, so Women were not allowed to learn. They were not. Most women in the Judaic Pharisaic tradition were to be kept illiterate. But in the Greco-Roman tradition, many women were literate. So now he's preaching the gospel to an area where there are Gentile and Jewish converts. And he says, let the women learn. In Christianity, we want women to learn, but there are parameters to that learning. And then he goes on to some very difficult verses. And I'd like to go into detail with them. In King James, it says, let the women learn in silence with all subjection. In the Jerusalem Bible, let them learn in quietness with full submission. Well, all of us do better if we can learn in a quiet environment, submitting to our teachers. If we're constantly fighting the teacher, it's, it's good to have questions, but you have to ask them humbly. In the NIS, it says, a woman must be a learner listening quietly with due submission. Now, I have no idea, but if any of these women have come from a tradition where they have not been allowed to learn, they may be out of control. Um, they may be uh, talking too much. They're so excited to be in it. We don't know the problem. And so let's just be patient with, with Paul's text here. In the RSV, it said, women should be quiet and respectful during instruction. You know, they are to be instructed. So let's just not get so worried about the other part. And remember, he's talking about the idea of bringing women in. He's saying, I don't want illiterate women. This is a wonderful topic. And in John W. Welch's translation in the book that's referred to as charting the New Testament, he says, let women learn in serenity, with deference, in peace of soul. Let's remember to every one time that Paul has a negative statement about women, you can find 12 to 19 times where he says women should be learning. Women should be part of the organization of worship. There's so many positives to every negative. It's just hard to see them in the King James because they don't get the gender right all the time. But remember, every time you come across a troubling passage to ask yourself, what problems was the author trying to address? There are obviously things in that community that we don't know about. But I want to go back just to remind you, we've talked about this word many times. The word subjection or submission in Greek is mentioned over 38 times in the New Testament and 28 times by Paul. Remember, it first came from this military definition where it was to arrange in a military fashion under the commander or the leader. But it's used so many times. In Romans, it's a verb. In 2 Corinthians 9, it's a noun. It's in Galatians 2, Ephesians 5, 1 Timothy 2. You know, all of these are by Paul, and all of them are used in a non-military setting. That means submission in a voluntary attitude, giving in, cooperating, assuming responsibility, carrying a burden. So he's saying, women, I want you to learn in a cooperative manner. We want to build the kingdom of God. We want you to learn so that we can each help each other. And we want you to do this voluntarily, 
giving in and carrying a burden. We want you to carry the same burden of learning the gospel of Jesus Christ as the fellow brethren. We need you to help carry the message. This is a fabulous call. You know, we read it exactly the opposite, I think, of what Paul was trying to intend. I just want to give you a few other examples of why it's hard to know the positive mentions by Paul, even in this letter. First Timothy chapter six, it says in King James, if any man teach otherwise, well, that word man means male or female. It means if anyone is teaching otherwise, we withdraw from them, which means he was having women teach. We know women were being taught and listening because of these other statements. Second Timothy chapter two, verse two, it reads, these things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men. Well, that word in Greek is human. It's male or female, like our word anthro, you know, it, it's, it's both. So commit these things to the saints, to the male and female saints. He continues on, who shall be able to teach others also? He's saying that women should be teaching right here too. And in Titus chapter two, he says, the aged women who become holy should be teachers of good things that they may teach the young women. We already have an organization where the women are teaching and it's mentioned many times. So when you come across a line that is different, just step back and say, I don't get the whole picture. Let's look at it more closely. And we are also blessed with another way to tell how something is correct. And that comes from the blessing of having modern prophets. In section 25 of the Doctrine and Covenants, we're taught by the Lord that Emma or women should be ordained to expound the scriptures and exhort the church. That's chapter 25, verse four. I am so grateful to have living prophets. And we began hearing our living prophet on these messages almost every year since he's been an apostle, but I just have chosen two. From 2019, he says, Dear sisters, you are more than eight million strong. You have not only the numbers, but you have spiritual power to change the world. And then in 2022, he said, the women of the church should increase your understanding of the priesthood power and of your temple covenants and blessings. You know, this is when he said, women, the blessings of uh, section 84, the oath and the covenant of the priesthood are as much for you as they are for men. Understand that you hold priesthood power. And this is our prophet. And ever since President Kimball said this statement in 1979, it's been repeated and repeated and repeated up till as recently as 2019 by President Oaks. But starting out with President Kimball in 1979, it will be that female exemplars of the church who will be a significant force in the numerical and the spiritual growth of the church in the last days. That's now. May we allow and encourage and benefit from the women. First Timothy chapter two, verse 14 says, Adam was not deceived, but the woman being deceived was in transgression. Now, remember coming out of the Judaic culture and most of Christianity, Eve is seen as a sinner and as the source of all evil. And I've got all these notes in my handout and footnotes, if you want those in the full commentary of the New Testament. But we live in a dispensation where that is completely changed. We honor Eve. I feel like Joseph Smith was the first feminist of the 19th century. We not only do we honor Eve, but we believe in a mother in heaven. We believe that women are noble. So this statement by Paul is probably accurate. Eve was deceived. That's all there is to it. But we do honor Eve in this dispensation. 
He continues on with another Joseph Smith translation in verse 15. Notwithstanding, they shall be saved in childbearing. Now, if you have the King James there and it says, notwithstanding, she, meaning woman, will be saved in childbearing, that means unless women bear children, they can't be saved. Well, that is a heresy. That is completely false. Of course, it has nothing to do with childbearing. But the whole purpose why we came to earth is so that we could receive bodies. So Adam and Eve need to procreate. They will be saved if we come to earth and provide bodies. And those people who are married and can have children, the Lord has asked us and commanded us to multiply and replenish the earth with as many as we can righteously bring forth. It's a righteous desire. I want to finish the whole verse in the Joseph Smith translation. But if they continue in faith and charity and holiness and sobriety, it's not just having children. You've got to live the gospel. You've got to live every law. But I love the ISV translation of 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 15. Listen to this. Even though she will be saved through the birth of the child, if they continue in faith and love and holiness and good judgment, who is the child? Capital C is how they have it in their text. It's our Savior. He is the only child born just of woman. Remember, in the both Greek and Hebrew, there's no capitals. You don't know what's a capital. I love this translation. We are saved through Jesus Christ. And that is how Eve was in transgression. Adam and Eve fell. Um, Adam followed his and supported his wife. But we are all saved through our Savior, the child, the only seed of just woman. We now turn in chapter three to advice to bishops. And he gives seven verses on this. And I'm just going to read the first two. If a man desire the office of a bishop, he desireth a good work. A bishop then must be blameless. My husband's been a bishop twice. My dad was a bishop. My brother, my uncles, my brothers, my, you know, I've been around a lot of bishops. I'm an old lady. Um, blameless is not quite the right word, um, but sincere in heart and repentant and willing to serve where they're called is definitely the case. And then Paul goes on and gives all sorts of attributes that are good things. This is how I know that Timothy is in a position to be calling bishops. And I think it's one of the most important callings that our stake presence have is to receive God's revelation to know who God wants to serve as a bishop. They have to be above reproach, a husband of one wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not dependent on wine, not violent, but gentle, peaceable. They do not love money. They manage their household. They're obedient and respectful. Their children are obedient and respectful as well, with reverence. They are not a recent convert. They're not prideful. They have a good reputation with outsiders, and they don't fall into disgrace. That is a pretty tall order, but that is the call for all disciples. We all need to act as pastors. Then he leaves the bishop's council. And he gives seven verses now from verse 8 to verse 15 for deacons. I just want to remind you what the word deacon means in Greek. It means a servant, a waiter. It's anyone who performs any service or administration. So they have it in the female form in the New Testament as someone who is waiting on God and who's serving God. And they have it in the male form in the New Testament. So in the restoration, we just hold it as one who holds the um, priesthood, who serves and actually, the president of the, of the deacon's quorum has keys of the priesthood. But in the New Testament, is anyone who serves and waits on God and, and blesses the church. So they have it in both the male and female in the New Testament. He says in verse 8 in the BSB translation, Deacons, likewise, must be dignified, 
not double-tongued or given to much wine or greedy for money. He continues on in those seven verses to give a few other attributes. They've got to be worthy of respect and sincere, not indulgent in much wine. They've got to not pursue dishonest gain. They've got to uh, hold deep truths of faith. They need to have a clear conscience and be tested. They've got to be faithful to his wife and manage his children and household well. In the early restoration, in the early Christian church, a deacon was an older person, obviously. But they, remember, they were married very young, 12, 13, 14 years old in the ancient world. Um, in fact, we have records of people being married at, at 10. Um, so I am convinced that um, the restoration change of deacons being young men um, is, is in keeping with the Lord's, even if it's not in keeping with this council here in First Timothy on their age. He then goes on to talk about the women leaders, the female leaders in verse 11. In the same way, the women are to be worthy of respect, not malicious talkers. That means gossips, if you read it in another translation, but temperate and trustworthy in everything. You know, this is exactly, he gives several verses now on direction to the female leaders as he did to the male leaders. And then we begin the second half of the letter in chapter four. And he corrects these false teachings. He says in verse one in the NIV, the spirit clearly says that in latter times, some will abandon the faith and follow deceiving spirits. And then in verse two, he calls them hypocritical liars in the NIV translation. The apostasy is not only prophesied of, but it says it's, it's happening now in some of these letters as well. Verse three reads in the BSB translation, they will prohibit marriage. They will require abstinence from certain foods that God has created. He said, this is wrong. Marriage is, is ordained of God. Verse eight, continuing on in the NIV, for physical training is of some value, but godliness has value for all things. I often used to um, measure how much time I spent exercising to how much time I spent in the scriptures. And now I spend way more time in the scriptures than I do exercising. I have to beef up my exercising. But I'm just touched by the fact that he's saying, you know, we live in a, in a world at this time where the, phys the physique was so important and, and mastering your body was so important. Well, I see that in our world in some cultures too. But let's make sure that we train our spirits even more so, we spend more time in the scriptures. Um, when we arise and our mind is fresh, let's dive into our scriptures. First Timothy 4, verse 12, be thou an example of the believers. And then he gives specific counsel. By your words, do people know you're a disciple? Now it says in King James, in conversation, but that means in your conduct. It's different than in the words. It's, it's grander. By everything you do, can people tell you're a believer? In charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Now, I hope that people understand that I am a disciple of Jesus Christ just by the way I act. Moving on now to 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 14. Neglect not the gift that is in thee, which was given thee by prophecy and by the laying on of hands. Now, this is interesting because it happens multiple times in Paul's letters. He refers to gifts as callings. Callings are our gifts. So is he referring to missionary work? Is he referring to a spiritual gift? Is he referring to his temple blessings, perhaps washings and anointings and endowment? We know that they were part of the New Testament era of the saints. We don't know. Paul next moves on to a huge section for the elderly and the widows. Chapter 5, verses 1 through 16. He spends 16 verses on saying, I want you to care for the older people. 
all about this sensitivity to those who need more care. And then moving on, he goes back to Paul's missionary calling of some sort. And in verse 22, it reads in the NIV, do not be hasty in the laying on of hands. Now he's already talked to him about calling bishops, about ordaining elders, maybe setting apart the saints and maybe specific missionary calls, but he's saying, don't do it hastily. Make sure you're taking time. Make sure you're getting revelation. And he mentions this repeatedly, you know, First Timothy 4 in Acts chapter 6. He's saying, we want you to call people by revelation, not because of convenience. Oh, it's time to fill 20 callings. Let's just get out a list and write them out. No, don't be hasty. Use God. Those of you who are in leadership positions, please spend time on your knees. Seek prophecy and revelations. Don't just counsel with your counselors. Counsel with divine revelation. Chapter 5, verse 23 in the BSB reads, Stop drinking only water and use a little wine instead because of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Now, remember, the average person in this day and age who was a peasant, which is 90% of the population, are living off the land. They don't have a lot of money, and so they dilute their water, 10 parts water to one part wine. And that one part wine acts as a purifier so that they don't get dysentery, because this water is, is filled with all sorts of germs. It's not purified water. And so he's saying, you've got to add something to your water to purify it. You're getting sick all the time. You don't have what it—your stomach can't digest this without a little bit of wine. And even on high holy days, like the Passover, they diluted their wine with three parts water to one part wine. You know, this, this is not a problem in the ancient world. And their wine is their wine of own making. So, so don't worry about it. Continuing on in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 1 and 2, he gives duties to slaves. All who are made under the yoke of slavery should consider their masters worthy of full respect so that God's name and our teachings may not be slandered. Now, that's the NIV translation, but I want you to go back to Philemon and the things I taught there. Paul and Christ and John the Baptist all gave examples and counsel to masters to be kind to their servants and servants to obey their masters and to serve them willingly. Now, he's not saying if you're being abused, you need to just submit to it and be uh, an accomplice, a part of a victim here. He is saying, we want you to serve with respect and honor them in your station. And remember, slavery was very different than it. It's like an indentured servant. It's just a few years, and then they can move on. Chapter 6, verse 7 to 9 reads in the NIV, We brought nothing into this world, and we can take nothing out of it. But if we have found food and clothings, we will be content with that. Those who want to get rich fall into temptation and a trap. Continue John and calls these people high-minded in verse 17, but he is very worried that the priority of the saints may be affiliated with money, may have a love of money. He continues on in verse 10 of chapter 6 in the NIV, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. Now, we learn um, in a well-known maximum that you can buy anything in this world for money. And in fact, Hugh Nibley said, the first article of false faith is you can buy anything in this world for money. This is a huge danger. We need to seek after the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And when we pay our tithes and offerings, the Lord will make sure we have enough. But let's not ever seek for money above seeking to serve in the kingdom of God. The second half of verse 15 gives us our third beautiful prayer. 
And the JST adds a lot there and cuts out a lot. So I'd like to read it from the JST. Who is blessed and potentate? Now, potentate means either a sovereign or a ruler. You can read those in other translations. It goes on to say the king of kings, the Lord of lords. Then Joseph crosses out a whole bunch and then adds, to whom be honor and power everlasting, whom no man hath seen nor can see, and to whom no man can approach, and he who hath the light and the hope of immortality dwelling in him. Now, this is very interesting. Why is Joseph Smith changing this to say that we can't see the father when Joseph Smith himself saw the father? Well, he's writing Paul's account. And in Paul's experience, he had seen the son, but perhaps he hadn't seen the father. He was still an unseen God to him. And thus we get this text added in by Joseph Smith as if it were Paul's words, not Joseph's words. Let's move on to Titus now. Chronologically, Titus follows 1 Timothy, as you can see here in my chart. And we have 11 verses before this book on Titus that tell us about Titus. So if you go back and on my chart, I've got them all written out. 2 Corinthians has a whole bunch, and then 2 Timothy has a few as well. But right now, Titus is serving in Crete. We think he's writing this in about AD 61 to 64. And Crete was a very prosperous island. But because it's an island, we've got things like pirates going on along there as well. We have a lot of treacherous people, a lot of violence, a lot of immorality. In fact, the word Cretan was another word for liar in Greek because they were so well known for being naughty. This is also during the time of Nero's service. And Paul is probably writing from Rome. He starts out in chapter one, verse four, by saying to Titus, mine own son after the common faith. Now, by my own son, we assume that he was part of his conversion, part of his missionary service. I'll just give you a quick outline. There's only three chapters. After the opening, he gives instructions on the church organization, chapter 1, verse 5 to 9. And then he immediately addresses the same thing he did in the other letters, false teachers and apostasy. Chapter 2 gives another household code, just like we found earlier in Colossians and we see later in Peter. And then chapter 2 finishes up with what Christ has done. And then he concludes in the last few verses of chapter three. So let's start out in 1 Titus chapter one. He's asking after his little introduction, starting in verse five in the NIV, he says, I want you to put things in order. And then I skip down to verse 10 and 11, also in the NIV. There are many rebellious people full of meaningless talk, deception, especially those of the circumcision group. They must be silenced. Five times he calls on the need for sound doctrine. He says the apostasy is everywhere. We have people who are coming in and preaching and teaching falsehoods. And Titus, I need you to go in there and clean it up. Your job is to clean it up. He continues on giving this household code to three different groups. Starting in chapter two, the first group, verses two to five, is to teach older men. And he says, Get them out of them drinking too much. You got to get them sober. They've got to be worthy of respect. The next group is, I want you to teach the older women. Be reverent. I guess they're talking too much or something and they're getting addicted. He says, teach the older women to be reverent in the way that they live. Not addicted. They want to urge the younger women to love. They need to be working with their children. They need to be self-controlled and pure. And the last group he talks to again are the slaves. And he says, I want you to teach the slaves to be in subject. Remember, that means to voluntarily cooperate with their masters, not to talk back to them, not to steal from them. 
he's just asking for basic commandments of, and, and respect and, and honor. Moving on now to chapter three, I want to start in verse five. He's talking about Christ again, and he says he saved us by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. Now, in addition to this referring to the washing and anointing or the washing of feet, the washing of regeneration is another word for the atonement. This is Christ's complete cleansing, his complete sacrifice that he has given for us so that we all may be cleansed if we repent and if we come and return unto him and stop sinning. Next, we come to 2 Timothy. It was probably the last epistle written of Paul's, and in the chronological order, it falls right between AD 66 to AD 68. It's probably during his second Roman imprisonment, still under Nero, after Acts chapter 28. And Paul says in this letter, I'm going to read from chapter 2, verse 9 in the NIV, I am suffering, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. So this is why it's a different imprisonment that he had the first time when he's able to teach the gospel. People are coming in to visit him, you know, very different. And he's writing back to Timothy, who's still in Ephesus, which is on the west coast of modern day Turkey. I'll just give you a brief outline of this letter. There's four chapters. He starts out with his greeting and then he spends chapter one through halfway through chapter two on this charge. He wants um, him to visit Paul in prison and he gives him a mission to do this. Then chapter 2 gives the second section, verse 14 to chapter 4, verse 5, dealing with the false teachers. You know, as you see these chronologically, there's more and more challenges with these false teachers creeping in and changing the doctrine. We're seeing an apostasy in action in this letter. He talks about the teachings of the Lord's servants, the evil of the last days, that all scripture is the word of God, and that we have to teach that scripture. And then he concludes in the last few verses of chapter four with greetings to specific people. So he starts out in second Timothy chapter one with his standard greeting, Paul, an apostle. And then he goes into his thanksgiving between verses one to five to Timothy, my beloved, dearly beloved son, grace, mercy, and peace from God, the father and Christ. And skipping down a little bit more, I have remembrance of thee in my prayers night and day, greatly desiring to see thee. And then he talks again about his mother and grandmother, Lois and Eunice, that I talked about earlier. He moves on in verse seven, and I'm going to read from the NIV. The spirit God gave us does not make us timid, but gives us power and love and self-discipline. You know, again and again, we hear that Timothy is a little bit reticent about moving forward. And again, Paul encourages him, the spirit can give you the strength to do this. You can do this. He's a cheerleader behind the scenes. Moving ahead to verse 15 in the NASB, it reads, all who are in Asia are turned away from me. So this whole letter is a letter, an appeal for an endurance. You know, this whole area, now remember Asia is not what we refer to as Japan and China and Korea. This is Asia started with Turkey and going across. He's saying they're all apostatizing. He continues with this in chapter two, verse three to six. And I'll read from the new King James version. Endure hardships as a good soldier. And also, if anyone competes in athletics or is a hardworking farmer, you know how to work hard. You got to apply that to the gospel. Don't leave over silly things because your culture thinks that what the prophet's saying is wrong. Remember back, you have... You have Jesus Christ's atonement to, to hold on to. You know, it, it fits into our day and age so beautifully. 
Second Timothy chapter 2, verse 11 to 13 continues on in the NIV. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we're going to receive the Savior's atonement and we're going to receive the blessings of repentance and forgiveness, we better act like it. We have to live with him. And if we endure, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will disown us. But if we are faithless, he will remain faithful for he cannot disown himself. So God will always be faithful. But if we disown him, we will not have the blessings in heaven. He continues on with the evil in the last days, starting in chapter three. The first nine verses are all about this, but I just want to summarize the first five verses here. In the last days, perilous times shall come, for men shall be lovers of their own selves. That is where we are right now. Continuing on a little bit further ahead, they're covetous, having a form of godliness, but denying the power. Remember that word power is used generally for all of God's priesthoods, all of the power of the spirit thereof from such turn away and let us go there today. Stop being so self-centered and self-focused and focus on others and on serving God. Chapter two, verse three. Now in verse 15, goes back to those beautiful verses that I mentioned earlier, that Timothy, as a child, thou hast known the holy scriptures, which are to make thee wise unto salvation through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. May we teach the scriptures to children. May we find translations that they can understand. May our breakfast tables and our dinner tables be filled with scriptural understanding. Connect daily scripture study with your family. Connect your family vacations with church history things. Teach the scriptures. We, As Nephi said, we talk of Christ. We teach of Christ so our children may know to what source to look. It's not so they'll know the stories. It's so that they can come unto Christ. What source to look for a remission of their sins? I love verse 16 of chapter 3. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is to be profitable for the doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. After about age 11, I couldn't tell my children what to do. So I shared with them a verse of scripture that taught them some of these principles and they had to be accountable to God. Joseph Smith's translation is very helpful in chapter 3 here in verses 12 and 13. All that will live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. And then Joseph Smith changes, but to four evil men and seducers shall wax worse and worse, receiving and being deceived. You know, this apostasy is well documented in our scripture. And Second Timothy ends with this call in chapter four, verse nine and 11 and 13 and 21 with letting us know how hard it is for Paul right now in prison how miserably cold he was and hungry. Make every effort to come to me quickly. Only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you and bring a cloak. He says where to pick it up. And then he says, my scrolls, especially the parchments, come to me before the winter. You know, he's cold. He needs some friendship. And I'm so grateful he's asking for Mark. Do you remember on his second mission, according to the book of Acts, He and Barnabas had a disagreement. He said, I don't want Mark to come with me. Mark left my first mission and I don't want a quitter. And now he's saying, Mark is not a quitter. Mark has endured. I want Mark beside me. I want Mark to be one of my disciples. This is such a beautiful way to end the New Testament letters chronologically by Paul. 
He's asking the saints to join together and to support their leaders. May we do the same, I pray, in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.